Please take your Bibles if you would. And while we're in between the ending of Colossians and the beginning of Romans, we're going to take a few different sermons uh, from our normal walk verse by verse through a text. Uh, last week, Chris opened up 1 Peter again for us from chapter 1. Today, we'll look at a psalm. Next Sunday, I think a topic. And then, Lord willing, early October, we will begin to study together the book of Romans. Whenever we look at a psalm, I always think it's good to hear Nancy Guthrie's reminder where she said, we do not want to be so vain as to think the greatest songs ever written, the 150 in the Psalter, are all about us. The songs we want to sing in full voice, the songs we want to make sure the whole world hears, the songs we want to sing into eternity are not about our suffering or our questions or our experiences. We want to join the congregation led by our brother Jesus to sing of his sufferings and his glorious victory that he intends to share with us. We want to celebrate his sure salvation provided to us and his righteous reign over us. It's amazing that a thousand years before Christ came, we have writings like this in the Psalms and in the Old Testament where there's a limited understanding. There certainly is not the New Testament understanding that we have getting to look backward in time, but that we get to make more sense of and understand more fully because of the further revelation of God himself as Jesus and then of his word, the New Testament that we have before us. So as we turn back into the Old Testament, into the middle of it, to Psalm 96, it's a psalm that, like most songs and psalms in the scriptures, make much of God and exalt him highly. The main point of the song is the opening words of verse 4, that God is great, so great, and therefore, because of that greatness, he is to be praised greatly. But this psalm is perhaps a little unique in that it puts an extraordinary emphasis on the world, the nations, leading some to call it a missionary hymn. So a traditional outline, breaking the song into uh, sections, which is often done for us by our various translations. You can see here that there are, your, your translation may have it even broken into these six sections, or basically three uh, mirrored sections or sets of thought. Verses that call for praise to God, verses 1 to 3, as do 7 to 9, as do 11 and 12, and then verses that express the reasons why, the cause for such high praise and such extensive praise. But we're going to take a little different approach, more at the bottom of the screen, because I see these three themes running interwoven throughout these 13 verses. Tried to visualize that a little bit for you in Thursday's email, if you looked at that. And we'll try to do so again this morning just to make those pop off the page a little bit more. But just as many psalms, the many magnificent qualities of God worthy of greatest exaltation, then how fully we are to respond with nearly a dozen responses called for on our part, not just suggestions, but commands. And then how extensive, how worldwide, how all earth encompassing God wants worship to ultimately
be, how much we are to care that all peoples, all nations praise our God and not just our nation or our church or our local community. Like the gospel, the Psalms can be intensely personal. In fact, the gospel must be intensely personal to us and applied to us. And like the gospels, the Psalms can also be intensely global or universal. We can just think of it in terms of all of these commands are for me, but all of these are commands are also for all of God's people. Jesus died for me personally. At the same time, Jesus died for billions of other people that he is saving. And it's important for us to see and feel both of those dimensions and not make our own focus, our personal focus of the Psalms, greater. We can't get too myopic and nearsighted thinking primarily about ourselves and miss out on the broader picture that God is painting in a song. In fact, in this one, there's not a single personal pronoun that's used. One of Israel's major failures as God's first chosen people was that they thought God's salvation was primarily for them. Their race, their people, their land, um, and exclusive rather than inclusive. But God called them in this psalm, and 3,000 years later is equally calling us on the other side of the globe to also not think of salvation and of God too selfishly, too narrowly. Jesus Christ, the exhilarating news about him, the gospel explodes that focus from one nation to almost 200, from one people group to somewhere between six and 8,000 people groups. Everyone is invited to the salvation of our God, every human equally. And those of us who know him and know of this salvation are the ones God calls to go and make it known to others. Psalm 96 is such a big picture look at God's plan that by the end of this, you can feel perhaps that it's exaggerated, that it's closer to fantasy than it is to reality. But part of that is because our vision is often so narrow. So again, this is a kindness this morning from our God to us to have this revelation of him and of his will for us. Let's ask him to help us understand it, that it would purify and elevate our view of God and transform our lives. And before we go to prayer, I just want to say, as we talk particularly about missions today, that there is a sense in which everybody that's 14 to 33, I don't know how I picked those numbers, really needs to listen. And part of that is because your direction in life, your roots down in a place are not as set yet, and often that's a time that God can really move you toward investing your life in missions. But I want to emphasize, I don't care what age bracket you're in, um, that God here perhaps is calling you to respond in ways beyond 
what you have ever done, perhaps even in some very personal and sacrificial ways. So let's ask him to do his work through his word now. Lord, we've already heard so many times this morning through the Sunday school hour and already in the service together that your word is our lifeline to you. It is the means by which we understand you and can grow in you and know you better. And it's the means by which you work in us to transform us, to equip us, to make us more and more and more like your son. So would you again, in your faithfulness, for the 500th some time that we've opened the word as a church together, please make your your way, your will, clear, powerful in each of us, I pray. Accomplish your purposes in First Street Bible Church for what you mean, Psalm 96, to mean for us, I pray. In your name, amen. So let's work quickly through this psalm three emphases at a time. The first one being to meditate worshipfully just on the magnificence of God, particularly his attributes, but also his works. So verses one through three are the first stanza, and you see right away, next slide if we could, the triple emphasis on the Lord. And that's going to carry throughout the psalm. You'll see the Lord in triplicate down in verses 7 and 8a as well. We see the Lord emphasized nine times out of these 13 verses. He is always the object of whatever we're being called to do. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Perhaps the Lord the Father, the Lord the Son, the Lord the Spirit. Perhaps not that broken into the Trinity, but just this trifecta of emphasis on the Lord and singing to the Lord, and then adding another trifecta, not of similar, of uh, identical words, but blessing, telling, and declaring in two and three also add to this, that our songs are to be comprised of focusing on these qualities of our God, his name, his salvation, his glory, and his marvelous works. And it's just good to stop and say, is that what our music is about? Is that what we sing about on Sunday mornings? Perhaps your question has been, why don't we sing more about us and me and our feelings and our struggles, which are legitimate and real? And yet God has told us and shown us that when we put our focus on him, everything else gets clarified in that. Stanza two goes on to identify more things about God. First of all, as we've noted, just his overall greatness and then his creation at the end of verse 5, and then four things, this four magnificent characteristics that are meant to grip us. Splendor, majesty, strength, and beauty. In all of this, he's, he's emphasized as being so superior, or the Colossians word, preeminent to any other God that it could possibly be out there in the universe. He is so infinitely greater than all of those He is staggeringly greater than every other god and idol. But it is a battle of the gods, ultimately, in this world, whether it's the lesser gods with names that we recognize that have built religions and in huge followings 
from the Mormons to the Muslims to the Catholics to others, or the lesser gods of the irreligious who try to shed all religion and pursue and chase and worship money and pleasure and sex and power and achievement and possessions and a whole host of other things. Everyone is a worshiper. Everyone is a God pursuer and seeker. Everyone is after something, trusting in something as their God, whether they can articulate that or not. And the psalm here emphasizes the greatness of our God over all of that. I like the way Tony Reinke put it, just simply, surrounded by all the idols of Western culture, and he lists just three. I, in the midst of all of that other worship, I will continue to sing your praises, O God, with my whole heart. Back to the Psalms. Next stanza, stanza three, verses seven to nine. Reiterate more things, that God has glory. It's the same thing that was back up in verse three. You'll see it at the end of verse seven and at the beginning of verse eight. Strength, emphasized in verse six, uh, re-emphasized in verse seven. And then the added thing, the glory that's due his name. In other words, a glory that he is worthy of, that all mankind should recognize and should give to him. And then in verse 9, the splendor, the beauty, the radiance of his holiness. When we get to stanza 4 in verses 10 to 12, and really through the rest of the song, the focus now shifts to God as king and as judge. So you have the reigning and then the judging, that you'll see that language in here. And it turns to future, and we'll see the verb will at the end of verse 10, and then again in verse 13. So the reigning, the establishing of the world in its creation, and in his sovereign control of it all. And then what's coming at the end is a judgment of the peoples with equity. 11 and 12 we'll come back to in the response, uh, worshipful response, but verse 13 then reiterates that when he comes, he's coming to judge, and he'll judge two more qualities of God, his righteousness and his faithfulness. The same qualities that we so love about his saving of us will be qualities that will sparkle in his judgment of all mankind and his rule. So just go back to the prophecy that every Christmas we remind ourselves of in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, the beginning of this reign and this rule. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. What a quick jump from a baby being born to a government being on his shoulders. And then after naming him, verse 7 really breaks into this reign and rule. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it, same word we just saw in Psalm 96, uh, verse 10, to uphold it, and then the same emphasis as Psalm 96, with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever, the zeal, the passion, the power, the will of God, the Lord of hosts, will accomplish what seems to be a fantasy of a baby born to carry the entire world for all eternity. All right, let's walk through now the psalm a second time, now noting God's charge to us. These will be in the light blue. Again, verse 4 is 
the greatness of our God not only deserves these responses, but demands them, warrants them for all who are experiencing them. So again, triplicate call. Sing, sing, sing. Uh, just briefly in emphasis, we just talked about singing when we were in Colossians 3.16 a few months ago. Um, but just that God loves to be sung to, that music is his creation, and one of the reasons he created music and our hearts to love music so much is because it's such a powerful way of exalting and worshiping and all the other things that we're going to be called to do in this psalm. And again, I think one of our finest qualities as a church body, and we, you have a lot of fine qualities, but one of them is our singing. It's so good to hear. And by the way, those of you that sit under the balcony, you're getting like half, 50% of the blessing. A balcony, or yeah, balcony people, I don't know. I haven't been up there enough, but I think it's even less. You need to be in these front four rows, seriously, and have everybody behind you bringing that. Oh, goosebumps, people, goosebumps. Yeah, so move up, everybody up. Let's have everything crowded up here. I guess then you don't have anybody singing behind you, but we sing well. And yet, wouldn't you acknowledge God deserves more? God deserves more. So let's continue to seek to grow in this. Here's the way Spurgeon challenges us on this thought. Let us proclaim the glad tidings and do so continually, never ceasing this blissful testimony. It is ever new, ever suitable, ever sure, ever perfect, Therefore, let us show it forth continually until he comes. Both, and now he goes into a whole litany of things that the gathered church does together as ways that we uh, express that and do that. Each day brings us deeper experiences of our saving God. It's a profound statement it's, that should be what's happening in us as we continue to spend time in his word and in prayer and getting to know him. Each day shows us anew how deeply men need his salvation. Each day reveals the power of the gospel. Each day the Spirit strives with the sons of men. Therefore, never pausing, be it ours to tell of out the glorious message of his grace. Notice the emphasis on new songs. Not that familiar ones and well-known ones and long-standing traditional ones are out the door. But the idea is that the more we're growing in God, the more we have to sing about. That God's mercies to us are new. How often? Every day. Every day there are new mercies. New mercies to be sung about. New mercies we've never experienced before. New mercies deeper and deeper into salvation and the gospel as we go. So fresh mercies invite and call for fresh wonder, fresh awe, fresh gratitude, fresh praise. So we will sing for all of eternity. Let's not be slack now. We live in a remarkable time in history. I don't know that the church has ever had more songs to sing. What a blessing, what a sweet gift. Today, we sang with a newer lyric, a 3,000-year-old song, and after the message, we're singing a song written in the last few months, both of them as ways of exalting a faithful, unchanging, awesome God. 
All right, can't camp too long on singing because there's a number of other commands here. Coming right out of singing and blessing his name is tell of his salvation from day to day. Today, with the language of the New Testament, we could say that verse 2b is charging us to proclaim the gospel every day. That's language that wasn't familiar to David. That's language that, by God's grace, we've been given through Paul and through the other New Testament writers and by Jesus himself. God's grace in salvation in particular is so great, it's something we shouldn't be able to ever stop talking about. The gospel, again, Spurgeon, is a mass of wonders. Its history is full of wonders. And it is in itself far more marvelous than miracles themselves. In the person of his son, the Lord has displayed wonders of love, wisdom, grace, and power. All glory be unto his name. Who can refuse to tell out the story of redeeming grace and dying love? All the nations need to hear of God's marvelous works. And a really living, self-denying church, which is what we want to be, right? would solemnly resolve that right speedily they shall hear thereof. And I want to just even now be faithful as we seek to be weekly with you, to tell of his salvation, to let every one of you know here, especially those of you who either may be self-deceived or perhaps have not ever been taught and understood what God's word reveals to us, that we're not going to all be universally saved, that we're not going to be saved because of what we have done and accomplished. We can't hold up this morning's attendance, communion whenever we take it, gifts that we give, other things that we serve the Lord or serve with as the means by which we are saved. God is so clear when he gets to the New Testament when Christ comes, that salvation comes only in the name of Christ. There is salvation in no other name, no other way, no other method. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. So I just call for you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe on his coming as God to become man in order to live a life perfectly in obedience to God so that he could then offer himself on the cross to to pay, to substitute and take our place and pay our penalty so that on judgment day, when the Lord does come to judge, we are declared innocent, righteous, without sin, because his righteousness has been imparted to us. That's the salvation we want to declare every day. And we would love, as Chris said earlier, to have a further conversation with anyone here, anyone here who doesn't have that assurance, and as Don prayed, assurance that God has saved you because of your faith and repentance in him and in his son and in the gospel. Going on, the commands. In verses 4, 5, and 6, there's just one command. The emphasis is on fear on this reverent awe of seeing God, seeing his greatness, being stunned by it, amazed by it, and trembling as the end of verse nine will emphasize. Seven and eight come back and do much of the same idea as the opening verses of the psalm. Ascribing, 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 giving, 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 crediting, 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 over and over, endlessly, nothing to ourselves, Nothing to any other created thing, but ultimately all of it to God. Second half of verse 8, there's the emphasis on 
bring an offering and come into his courts. Not that we have to bring a sacrificial blood offering anymore, but the idea still is that the God who needs nothing still calls us to bring an offering. The New Testament, like in Romans 12:1, speaks of it as the offering of our bodies to him as our act of worship. Hebrews 13 speaks of our singing in our mouths, giving him uh, sacrifices of praise. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, you're like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The idea is that the gifts, the offering that we bring is a reflection of our appreciation of the worth of the one we are worshiping. And so gift-giving grace to us from God prompts gift-giving grace from us to God. And then the final command in verse 10, say, and that's it. There's no other command after this, but it finishes with this emphasis of God's rule and reign and position as king, the future hope. And yet within this also is laced a warning for anyone who rejects Christ as the means of salvation and their total dependence on him, that there will be a judgment that comes that will be uh, incredibly, incredibly harsh for those who have rejected and turned from him. So verse 9 really summarizes all of this. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. More quickly... A third time through the psalm, and I just mostly want to highlight the worldwideness, or what I'm calling the globalness of this song. So verse 1b, all the earth is called to sing to the Lord. Verse 3 has two emphases at the end of each of those, that line, those couplets, the nations and all the peoples. After a verse off, verse 5 emphasizes the gods of the peoples, of all those. Then verse 7, the families of the peoples, getting even more specific. Verse 9 at the end, all the earth is to worship and tremble. Verse 10 really goes heavy, every single one of those three lines, the nations, the world, the peoples. And then verse 13 picks it back up again, the earth, the world, and the peoples. Part of this for us is to note America doesn't stand out as one of God's favorite children. We're not a special place. We're not a special people above others, as if we're a bit more worthy. In fact, if you don't realize it yet, the number of Americans in the kingdom of heaven will be tiny compared to many other nations. It will be lost in the totality of all the nations. So in Revelation 5, the worship of the Lamb is recorded by John, and here's what he sees. They sang a new song. By the way, notice that little line tying into Psalm 96. They sang a new song in heaven in eternity. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, speaking of Christ the Lamb, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Here it is from every tribe, language, people, nation. Same language as we're seeing in Psalm 96. To make us a kingdom, priests, and reigning with him. 
Out of that, Andrew Peterson wrote a song that we sing often here, and I hope we'll sing many other times. Got to sing it twice this week at a pastor's conference. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? And the answer is the Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, David's root, the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. And then the same emphasis from every people and tribe, nation and tongue, He's made us a kingdom and priest to reign with his son. And then it comes back to that same question. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all the blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? And then the resounding over and over. He is. And each one gets bigger. He is. He is. Because truly, he is. In a lengthy closing... Let's bring Psalm 96 to emphasize uh, things for us. Trying to do that various ways. But I want to start with part of the reason why we exist as a church is to help be a part of fulfilling God's desire and God's heart in Psalm 96. Now these are from two other church covenants and I'm using them because I think our church covenant was a little short-sighted in this area. So I love this one from Burke Hills. You might recognize that name as a name that David Platt used to pastor at. But they start with the two foundational things, salvation and baptism. Having been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to surrender our lives to him. And having been baptized as Christians in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then immediately, their covenant goes to the biggest purpose. We covenant together to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. And here's why or how. Together we will draw near to God in worship. We will delight in the glory of God. We'll depend on the presence of God and we'll grow in the knowledge of God. Here's another covenant from a Baptist church. Blessed rich, this is later in their membership covenant, but blessed richly by God will contribute our riches and effort cheerfully, regularly, and richly to the support of church ministry, to the reef of the poor, and to the spread of the gospel through all nations. These are churches made up of individuals that I pray we will continue to become with that same heart, a heart for missions because of a heart for God to be exalted. The greater we realize God to be, the greater we treasure Christ, the more we see what God's kingdom is designed by him to be, and the more we understand God's plans and purposes the greater we will understand our task to be and the more we will devote ourselves as individuals and as a church to carrying it out. Even as I pray for First Street Bible Church to become even more global, I'm so thankful for the globalness God has already wrought here in you, in all of us. I'm thankful for the early elders half of which are no longer with us, setting a foundation that as a church we wanted to be generous toward outreach, toward missions, toward evangelism, toward things outside of our four walls rather than just benefiting ourselves. We aimed for 25%. We usually hit 15 to 20%. But this year, by God's grace, the most we've ever put toward outreach and missions, $130,000. I'm thankful Sorry, I'll try not to be too slobbery on these. These are just beautiful to me. 
I'm thankful God moved this couple named Clarence and Twyla from Papua New Guinea to this little body to bless us, to teach us, to model for us, to intensify. When, El- when Clarence sat on the elder council, I don't think we got by a meeting without talking about missions and the world and the need for so many to hear yet. I'm thankful that so far God has called out of this body the halls, Howells to go to Lithuania, the Powells to plant a growing house church of immigrants here in Lincoln, and the Schultzes to go to Kenya. And now is stirring in another single female member in our body to pursue and seek after full-time missionary work, as well as connecting us to missionaries that other churches have sent out, like uh, the Nathaniels and the Leachens and the Moors to Israel and Laos and Russia. I'm thankful there are members who intentionally bring people from other nations to our worship services. And if you came this morning and you're from another nation, welcome. We're so thrilled you're here. You had a beautiful part to our worship of God. Uh, and for those who are investing in those relationships in order for the gospel to go back to those countries. I'm thankful for dozens of individuals who have gone on short-term missions trips, sometimes without telling any of us, uh, but going. And uh, I just want to, I hope that continues to grow. Even this year, almost two dozen that we know of that went to various countries. And I know numerous others of you have done things, and many of you have supported those who are going and are connected. I'm thankful that God is giving us contact with other nations through businesses, through other parachurch ministries, through technology, and I'm sure there's many other ways, all reflecting how God has made us a church that's concerned for all the nations. Praise be to God for all that's happening. The world is certainly a smaller, more reachable planet than any other time in history. At the same time, the statistics we hear, if they are accurate, and they're organizations that are trying to do the most accurate counting of things as they can, the Joshua Project reports that there are still over 1,500 people groups with no missionaries or church, what they define as the unreached, and that there are still over 6,500 people groups where fewer than 2% of the population are believers. We heard a stat today about Israel, probably pretty close to that. Another missions organization had a, a display at the conference this week, and on it said 3 billion people without access to the gospel. So what would God have us do? Perhaps even beyond what we're doing. What more might God want to do in using people? I just want to encourage us to be Isaiah's. That praying that God would raise up many Isaiah's who, when they behold the glory of God, and God asks, whom shall I send? They don't respond with, I think so-and-so would be a great candidate. But they answer with, here am I, Lord. Send me, because God's glory consumes them. The New Testament puts that same question, and it was on the video uh, this morning that the Israel team shared as well, and good for us to hear again. 
the promise, everyone, no matter what nation, who calls on the name of the Lord for salvation will be saved. How will they call if they've not believed? How believe if they haven't heard? How will they hear if there's not someone preaching? How will they preach unless they are sent? And the conclusion of that is how beautiful to God, how precious are the feet, the lives represented by those feet who go with the express purpose to preach the good news. In this century, let's become the church of Antioch as it was in the first century where we're told in Acts chapter 13 that there was a church in the city of Antioch uh, outside of Israel, uh, not really mentioned much before this point in Acts, but really is central to the second half of Acts ever taking place. Five people are named, so it seems that there's five candidates, and you would think, well, God's going to send all five. And he doesn't. While they're worshiping, while they're fasting, while they're seeking out God's will, the Spirit makes clear to them that he has two that he wants set apart for the work, for missions, the exact job to which he has called them. So they fasted and prayed more, laid their hands on Paul, Saul, Paul, and Barnabas, and sent them off, and they were sent out. I love this wording. By the Holy Spirit. Note that the pool of candidates it comes from the best testing ground for effective missionaries, and that's a local church where people prove themselves to be reliable and trustworthy, where they hear of God's work and missions reports, they catch the vision, they sense the call from God, longing to be part of his heart for the nations. The local church body suffers a loss of sending out its finest and its best. So who among us might the Lord be calling us over the coming years to set apart to God for the purpose of sending them out so people could hear the good news, believe, repent, and be saved? Who might God be calling among us? Who might he be wanting us to send and support with whatever money and prayers and resources that might be needed so that more families, tribes, languages, and people groups might experience the same salvation we're getting to enjoy and might themselves live out Psalm 96. Your first assumption should not be others are going to be better goers than me. It should be I will honestly pray. I will have a willing spirit. Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Here's the way J. Campbell White emphasized it. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ within his followers except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, and riches, what America holds out and dangles in front of all of us, are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. The men and women who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most precious rewards. What I call global gospeling is more costly than localized gospeling. But the rewards... In the midst of the sacrifice, in the midst of the hardships, 
The rewards and the joy are immeasurable. If any among us are sensing God's stirring in your heart in any way, share it. Even if it's at this point just a sense and pray and ponder and process and search the word and seek godly counsel and invite this church body into that process, we'll see what God does ultimately with it. There's a longer quote by John Piper. Stick with me because I think it captures a sweet spirit about the way God works in a church. The mystery of how God creates goers out of senders is very great. It is beyond human calculation. The very fact that you're sitting here in your relationships and your situation, given where you were born and all you've been through, is a stupendous mystery. And perhaps much more mysterious that in five years you may be serving Christ 10,000 miles from here and you don't even know it. Or maybe you do. But great as the mystery is, I'm going to venture one suggestion for how God does it. Namely, in a church where Christ is consistently portrayed biblically as the greatest treasure in the world and the hearts of the peoples year by year are finding deeper and deeper satisfaction in the glories of Christ. In that atmosphere, particular passages of Scripture are more likely to take hold of particular souls and become compelling divine missionary guidance. One more thought here. So here's my suggestion. As Christ becomes more and more precious to you, more and more satisfying to your soul, it is not unlikely that God will cause some scripture, some truth, to have your name on it. You won't act impulsively. You won't disregard counsel and gifting. But you won't be able to shake it either. It'll come back to you again and again. And sooner or later, you're going to go. And we will all wonder, how did God do that? In closing, let's bring it full circle with this thought. And Piper makes a distinction here, but I think it's a, think it's a helpful one, I hope. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. I think you can see that in Psalm 96. Missions exist because worship doesn't, or doesn't adequately, doesn't fully enough. Worship is ultimate not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. So worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. It has always been and will always be the ultimate purpose of God in the universe. It has always been the fire that fuels our passion to reach peoples who do not yet worship the true God through Jesus Christ. May we be so awed by God and what Psalm 96 captures about him, such worshipers of him, that we will say, here am I, send me somewhere where there will then be more worshipers that are one to you. 11 days ago, we Nebraskans gathered in our largest temple, Memorial Stadium, and we witnessed the largest crowd to ever Worship and cheer on a women's sport. And we're proud of that. We will tell anybody about that. We are great. Do you see what's happening? We're missing the boat. Yes, that's a great thing. There's a, there's a joy in all of that we can partake. I'm not bashing that. I was cheering too. Wouldn't it be great though if we felt that kind of bold passion for God? and for his glory, and for salvation. And that we wanted as many people as possible 
to see what a great God he is, what a great salvation he provides, and how greatly he is to be praised. John 4, Jesus told us, the Father seeks worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And God tells us that the most beautiful feet of any human feet are those who are taking the gospel to people, the good news of Christ, to people that they might hear and believe and be saved and transformed and become, like us, worshipers of an incredible God. Lord, thank you for Psalm 96. Thank you for its truths. And I pray we will not quickly forget these and dismiss them. I pray no one sitting in this room is thinking it's for other people and not for them. God, stir each of our hearts with what you want each of us to do. And may we, by your power, be obedient. May we fulfill your plan and purpose. May we be willing to send our finest and our best for this greater purpose and for the glory of your name. We do behold the Lamb of God, and we bow, worshiping you, thanking you, and ask that you'll help us to be faithful until we're actually doing that face-to-face. We pray in your name. Amen.